reading Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. For he founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false god. They will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God their Saviour. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, you gates. Lift them up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is he, this King of glory? The Lord Almighty, he is the King of glory. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning. As uh, Peter mentioned before, uh, my name's Paul, if you don't know me, uh, Associate Minister here at St. Columns. Uh, we are continuing our series on Psalms, which are songs of praise in the Bible. And in case you don't know, in two days, it will be Australia Day. That's a day that has become a little more controversial in recent years. We consider as a nation the impact colonisation has had on our Indigenous people. However, it continues to be a day where we recognise the contributions people have made to our country. I think that's less controversial. It's a way we can praise people, Australians who have made an impact. I think this is good because in Australia we're not really big on praise. Uh, It's a generalisation, but I think we're cautious of pomp and ceremony that, for instance, we see our American cousins might be better at. We can kind of think, be suspicious about it. It's kind of ostentatious, perhaps. However, I think we do believe as a nation that credit is due, and where it is due, we should give credit. For instance, I saw in the Weekend Australian, uh, just this weekend, the most recent one, This particular newspaper has recognised not one person but two groups of people as its Australian of the Year. Those two groups of people are, number one, us, Victorians. Yes, for doing a hard lockdown. Yes, yay. A hard lockdown to contain the virus, which has proved successful. And the second group was contact traces around the country. Ordinary, yeah, yeah. Ordinary people doing ordinary jobs. Why this honour? Why this praise? To quote from the newspaper, each group was handed a grim responsibility and to their daunting tasks they rose. Credits where credit is due. So well done, Australians of the Year, according to this newspaper. Why do I share this when we read Psalm 24? Well, we're called as Christians to praise, to praise God. And I think sometimes we might see that as a duty to be fulfilled. We come to church on a Sunday to sing songs and give God the honour that is due to him. It's a discipline I need to grow in, maybe even a chore at times. But I don't think that's actually why we would fail to praise God in the way we should. I don't think it's a disciplinary issue. I think it happens when we forget who God is. We know in the back of our mind who he is, but we're distracted by other things. We're discouraged by other other things. We forget to praise God because he is awesome in his creation. He is awesome in his generosity. He is awesome in his power. 
not using awesome like uh, my generation might, like that was an awesome pizza. I mean awesome, like with awe we should look at who God is. And we see in Psalm 24 that David can't help but see God in that way and out of his heart respond in a reciprocal and generous praise to God. Because I think if we recognise God as he truly is, we'll praise him. will be the natural outpouring of what we'll do in response to our God. Now, I mentioned the work of Victorians and contact tracers, uh, but I think what David says at the psalm reminds us of why those things could be successful. In this country, with its challenges of geography, desert, drought, nasty creatures, we have a specialty in that, all the challenges we have, nonetheless, we had all the resources we needed to do that work. We give thanks to generations before us for some wise decisions that enabled that. Our governments are never perfect, but I think we can be very thankful. But every blessing we have, its origin, its source, is the God who made all things. That's how David begins the psalm, isn't it? Noting everything we have in creation is a gift from God. Every blessing, every good thing. Verses 1 and 2. The, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The world and all who live in it. For he founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. David, at the beginning of the psalm, puts God front and centre. He's who we thank for all things. It's even more obvious in the Hebrew, because in the Hebrew, it actually begins, the very first word of the psalm is Yahweh, the Lord, meaning I am who I am, the name first spoken to Moses in Exodus 3. It reads literally, the Lord's, the, earth's, the earth is, and everything in it. The psalm focuses from the very start. The first word is the Lord. To God we owe our existence, our place on earth. The second line, he founded it on the seas and established it on the waters, that emphasises that point. What does it do? What's David doing there? He's taking us back to Genesis 1, to creation. God creates life out of the void, order out of chaos, the land from the seas, simply by his words. Let there be light. Let the dry ground appear. David's deliberately taking us back to creation to remind us who God is, our creator. You might have experienced this yourself, especially at this time of year. It's a time when we can sort of get away from things and see nature. You might have been at the beach or heard the hum of a powerful river and not help but thank God for this amazing creation. I'll never forget my um, niece's baptism. She was 16 at the time, just became a mum, another reason to praise God for creation. But I remember at her baptism she was sharing how at school in science they were looking at cells under the microscope and seeing just the detail in the smallest things of life. And then not long after that, went for a hike up into the mountains and seeing the broad, big picture of the world and seeing these two things in her mind and her heart could not help but think, well, who else can we praise or thank but our Creator? David's bearings are set by this. And if we get those bearings wrong, imagine if we thought the world is ours, and ours alone, and not belonging to God. I suspect many of our issues go with the world, with how we look after it, with how we look after ourselves even. Might go back to there. We need to get our bearings right. I got my bearings one wrong. Uh, you've got to get those first things right. I got them wrong with regards to swimming. I'd learned how to swim, I thought. Uh, I remember in year seven, can you swim? Do you want to go in a race? Yeah, I'll do it. I jumped off the board and I swam like anything. 
And then I was exhausted and I stuck my head up and everyone swimming on past me because what I should have learnt, and I'm sad to say I learnt this in my 30s, you don't just take a big gulp and then swim. You've got to lean to the side, breathe, and breathe out into the water. I hadn't learnt how to breathe out into the water. Embarrassing, but that meant I hadn't enjoyed swimming as I should have for all those years. And that's what David's doing here, isn't he? He's enjoying God. He's enjoying knowing God as his creator. The Lord is, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, all who live in it, means David is the Lord's. You and I are the Lord's. We praise God because we're created lovingly by him. So we praise God when we see he is creator. That's how David begins his psalm. But then he shifts. Once he's set his bearings, He shifts, we might say, as we heard so many times, he pivots. But he doesn't quite pivot. He's not going in a new direction. He's he's worked out where he is and he's setting his course. He's established where he is and now he has a place to go. He looks towards the mountain. The whole earth is the Lord's, but upon the earth, at that time in particular, God had made a holy place. It was Jerusalem at the top of Mount Zion. And in Jerusalem was the tabernacle, God's holy special tent. It represented, it was, the presence of God to Israel. The Ten Commandments were kept there. God's word to them, he was a God that related to them. The sacred ceremonies of the Israelites were carried out there. So David asks in verse 3, Who may ascend to the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false god. It's a fair question for an Israelite. They understand, as anyone who would read the Bible would understand, God is not only creator, he's holy. He's without sin, without blemish. He is light, and in him there is no darkness. He is good, and in him there is no evil. How can we come into his presence? We are not like that. Uh, This question, David wrote this psalm roughly 3,000 years ago, would have been before the Israelites in a very physical, tactile way as they watched the sacrificial system of the priests happen. According to God's directions in Leviticus, uh, chapter 16, you can read it, every year, each and every year, the the high priest would put his hands on two goats. First he would cleanse himself and, and do a sacrifice for himself, but then he would put his hands on two goats and confess the sins of Israel over the goats. Then one of the goats would be killed and the other one sent into the wilderness, representing the punishment for that sin, death. It's consequence, separation from God, the unholy being taken away from the holy. That was the way God had made for the high priest by himself to enter into God's presence, where the Ark of the Covenant was kept, those tablets of words to the people. To come before the holy place, you needed clean hands and a pure heart. But who could truly do that? This was the means, but only the high priest actually got that close. David knew you couldn't just be externally clean. I mean, we have clean hands. We should have. We've been sanitizing for years. or feels like years. But David knew that was just an external thing. How do you truly have a pure heart? He knew You needed God's forgiveness. You needed God to change your heart. 
We know this because we read it in the next psalm, Psalm 25, which, this is not a surprise, follows Psalm 24. Straight away, David is asking, God, do not remember the sins of my youth and my rebellious ways. For the sake of your name, Lord, forgive my iniquity, though it is great. Forgive my iniquity, my sin, though it is great. And David prayed this before he'd committed adultery with Bathsheba and sent Uriah the Hittite, her husband, off to war in the front lines to die. He knew his heart needed forgiveness and restoration. And that's the ongoing dilemma in the Old Testament is, here's the system that seems to say it's possible, but is it really possible? What it pointed to, of course, was the complete sacrifice, the one that would be just in Christ. I think we see it really well illustrated illustrated in this window behind me. You see at the top you have Christ, King of Kings, with his king's throne, a bold red robe. And then in the foreground, in the scene underneath, are the people, again, bold and colourful. But, and especially, I think you see this at midday, the smallest, greyest figure is Jesus, isn't it, on the cross. The king gives up his place of honour and becomes small. He becomes the sacrifice so that he would be our saviour, that his salvation would be true for us, that this forgiveness would be real, that the punishment would be fair. David lived with the sacrificial system, but it looked forward to this. So he could say with confidence in verse 5 that those who came with clean hands, made clean because their hearts were pure, not through sanitizer, they could come before God and in verse 5 receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God their Saviour. That word vindication literally means presented as righteous before their Saviour. The forgiveness is true. We praise God when we praise him as saviour, when we remember what Jesus has done for us. I know you've heard it before, but it's so central to who we are and what we have, and we need to remember it, that we'd praise God, that it would naturally flow out of our hearts. Remember how this battle was won and this man was made our saviour, this God-man. And no longer are we just part of his creation, but his children. We enter into his holy place. It is true. If we see God as creator and saviour, what will we naturally do? We'll praise him. So we've praised God as creator and saviour. We've seen that in the psalm so far. The last part of the psalm, verses 7 to 10, there seemed, there's thought that these parts were shouted. Maybe the first part was sing, but... We don't know for sure that certainly the last part of the psalm, there's a key change and a lift in volume. You could see it. It would fit. And in fact, I might even get you to do this at the moment. It would be responsive, most likely. You're thinking, oh, the sermon, I just get to sit back and listen. No, we're going to do a responsive psalm. I'm going to get the people on this side to do the parts in the, in the standard text and the people on this side to do uh, the responsive part. We're going to do a part of the responsive psalm. But you might like to stand. Uh, I don't think you have to wear a mask because we're not singing. All right. Just checked with the COVID safers. So on this side, lift up your heads, you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? This side. The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. 
Lift up your heads, you ancient doors. Lift them up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may king. Who is he, this King of glory? The Lord, the King, he is the King of glory. Please sit down. You can imagine what that would be like with thousands of Israelites or thousands of Christians on the day he comes. Do you get the picture? David's praising God for, for he knows his Lord is strong and mighty in battle. And that was a very physical and real thing for him as the king of Israel with other nations to be defended against him. And he needed a king in battle. There's two battles on showing this psalm, though. The first battle we saw earlier, that's the battle for our hearts. Did you notice there were two ways we could go? There was the way where we trusted in God, we, we were vindicated. But we could trust in idols, false gods, false security. Then and now, I think that so often is materialism. There's so many different ideologies it could be. But we see in the Bible and we know from our own lives how tempting it is to trust in the things we can touch and feel and see. Uh, There's a bit I love in Luke 12 where we see this battle for our hearts. Uh, Jesus is teaching his followers about God's love for them, that they will be persecuted and questioned. But the Holy Spirit will give them the words to say in that moment. And someone in the crowd says, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. He's teaching these deep spiritual truths and this Man says, hang on, I made some cash and some stuff. We can't help it. He sees Jesus as someone who has power. He asks him for this. Jesus warns him in response with a parable about a man who has such wealth. His crops grow so well, he builds bigger barns and thinks, I have ample goods. Relax, eat, drink and be merry. That night his life was taken. There's a warning here. It's a gracious warning not to trust in false gods not to swear deceitfully, to take heed of this. That's the first battle. It's an important battle for us to work out with God and at that point Jesus, sorry, David says to seek the God of Jacob, Jacob who struggled with these issues himself and relied on his own strength but in the end wrestled with God and put his trust in the living God. That's the first battle. Perhaps the second battle is harder though. It's those battles that life throws at us that we have no control over. The Israelites didn't always win those battles. In the years to come, this might have been a bittersweet psalm. Where is this Lord Almighty in our battles? We've lost. We've been destroyed. We see it in the Gospels. Where are you, Lord, in my battle with my daughter's illness? Where are you, Lord, in my son's death? Where are you, Lord, in my poverty? Where are you, Lord, in my broken relationships with my family? Where are you, Lord, in my grief? Where are you, Lord, in my anxiety? Where are you, Lord, in my struggle, in my loss of confidence? In the things I can't do that I used to do? In my loss of income, in my guilt, in my shame, in my pain? Where are you, Lord? Where is this Lord Almighty in battle? We have an example in the Apostle Paul of what it means to see our Lord as our warrior, Jesus as our warrior in these battles. Paul knew the power of God. He knew his forgiveness. He prayed for people and they were healed, even brought back to life. 
but he has a thorn in his flesh, he tells us about. He doesn't tell us exactly what it is. He prays seriously. When he says, I prayed three times, he means he prayed earnestly. He asked from the heart that his thorn would be removed. He called it a messenger from Satan to get the picture of what it was. There is an opponent in the battle. But God didn't heal it. And Paul says this is what God said to him in 2 Corinthians 12, 9 to 10. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul knows when he's losing the battle. When he's not strong in the battle, he needs a warrior in that battle. And Jesus is our warrior. When we know that, we can't help but praise him as draining, as discouraging, as sad as the battle might be. This psalm reminds us to praise God because he is our creator, he is our saviour, and he is our warrior in the battle. And one day, those gates and the ancient doors will be open and the battle won on the cross will be fulfilled and there will be but celebration and joy. God is strong and mighty in our battles. Shouldn't we praise him in every ounce of our lives? when we truly know him as he is. These things, creator, saviour and warrior. The example I think of is the baggy green. Might seem a strange uh, tie-in, but the baggy green cap, which a a chief executive, the MCC, once called the most famous of the cricketing caps, maybe because other nations for different tours will change the design of their caps. But the baggy green is quite an honour for an Australian to wear. Uh, When a player is given it to play test cricket, it doesn't just mean you're playing cricket. You're representing your nation. As have teams before you, as have people before you, heroes of this nation. Uh, Steve Warshap, he wore it all the time. You are allowed to ask for a new cap, should your one wear out, but not many players would seem to do it because of what it points to. In the end, his looked quite dilapidated, worn out, torn, But it didn't matter because it pointed to what truly mattered. And shouldn't our lives be a little bit like the baggy green cap? They might be a little worn out, a bit frayed around around the edges. Let's pray that they would point to God, that our lives, the little things we do and say, would point to our Saviour. Thank you, Lord, that the earth is yours and all that is in it. Thank you for sending Jesus to be our saviour, our forgiveness and our vindication. Thank you for our struggles and that you are our warrior in them. Lord, shape our hearts and lives to praise you. This we ask in Jesus' name and for his honour. Amen.